You're listening to ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. What does child psychiatry inform us about treating children and adolescents in the judicial system? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I am Dr. Leslie Lunch, your host, and with me today is Dr. John Hardy. Dr. Hardy is a board-certified child, adolescent, and forensic psychiatrist who is the medical director of the Colorado Boys Ranch. Welcome. Hi. You have a unique position of being not only a child psychiatrist, but also a forensic psychiatrist. Apparently, there are few of us that have qualified in both those subspecialties. Can you tell us how those two things come together? I think they come together in the way forensic psychiatry generally does. There are many things that people might do with forensic background who also practice child psychiatry. One might be uh, custody evaluations and those sorts of things. But most often, I think it comes to do with our the interaction with the legal system, uh, usually adjudication of children and adolescents, and also the court's interest in understanding conditions like insanity and competence uh, when they're trying to deal with legal matters with juveniles. Now, I presume that this is greatly different from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. There is quite a bit of uh, flux right now, and uh, the American Bar Association is well aware of that. There's certain issues that are going on in the judicial system that are very important. One is an increased recognition that younger and younger persons are being charged as adults, and it raises important questions around competence and constitutional rights. And a lot of uh, folks are concerned about there being a disconnect between the protections afforded to adults who are charged with serious crimes and the protections afforded to juveniles. I'll give you an example. In the juvenile systems in many states, they don't have the same types of protections against self-incrimination. And initially, those courts were designed to be predominantly rehabilitative. So they didn't feel they needed to have the same kinds of procedural effects. But as legislatures have started to make certain requirements of juveniles to be treated as adults, they haven't had the appropriate protections they might need to avoid self-incrimination or to have sensitive evaluations around their ability to participate. And so there, there is quite a bit of tension right now going on there have been recent programs on Frontline about life sentences that can be given to juveniles who are involved with felony murders. There really hasn't been a, a clear-cut way to factor in issues around mental illness and those kinds of things to decide whether or not that's an appropriate or even, let's say, a moral application of those kinds of laws. Well, and, and thinking about moral implications, doesn't all of this assume that these children are completely developed morally? Well, it certainly does. And you get into ideas, there are certain issues in, in competence, and it really is competent to do what? We recognize a 15-year-old can be competent to seek and engage in treatment, medical treatment, if he or she decides they need that. But we may not agree they're competent to carry a firearm or to perform brain surgery. So a lot of times people view competence as black and white rather than being relevant to the task at hand. When you ask somebody, how competent are you to stand trial for murder? Well, my goodness, that's a much more difficult thing than uh, answering a theoretical question. And so uh, a lot of competence is a fluid issue 
And uh, the other issue, of course, in the law that's critically important, and this often brings in the involvement of the forensic psychiatrist, is what the intent was, uh, because many crimes have issues around intent built into their definition. Did you intend to cause bodily harm? Did you recklessly or negligently act? Those kinds of questions are extremely important when it comes to the more serious crimes that may have been committed. How do you go about doing this sort of evaluation? I don't know that anybody has the expert guide to this. Uh, One of the things I would tell you is that attorneys that are involved in the juvenile system, particularly that work with very serious crimes, are, are a special group of people. They do that kind of work by choice, and they're often extremely well informed about not only the law, but about mental health issues as well. And so often what I might be asked to do, an example, a couple of the cases I've been involved with, one, the court appointed me, related to a double homicide. And I, my job was really to put together the history of this young man, what I thought had unfolded, which he had developed a psychotic break after being exposed to St. John's Wort at the recommendation of a well-intended family therapist and with tragic results. And I really had to take a history, really recreate, if I could, for the court what this young man was and wasn't and what had happened so they could weigh that into their decision around how best to proceed. And so it's very exhaustive work and sometimes emotionally pretty telling as well for for everybody involved. If you've just joined us, you're listening to ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I am Dr. Leslie Lunch, your host, and with me today is Colorado psychiatrist Dr. John Hardy. We are discussing the intersection between forensic and child psychiatry. What other comments do you have about adjudicating children and adolescents? I would say in general what's what's good for mentally ill children is good for all children. I didn't say that. Dr. Michael Rudder told me that. Because uh, I asked him uh, that question pointedly after he'd received the APA Lifetime Award, Presidential Award. I said, well, if you were in charge, and actually Dr. Rudder is in charge of the Welcome Grant, the largest uh, benefactor of grants in the world, but if you were in charge, what would you do? Where would you direct your attention and energies? And he told me what's, again, just that, that what's good for mentally ill children in a way, I was making a joke with you earlier about canaries in the coal mine. We should look very carefully at what impacts mentally ill children and adults because it will tell us in general how healthy our own society is. And I think trying to make sure that children with mental illness are treated justly in the judicial system I think will ensure that all citizens are treated a little bit better in that regard. I know there's an increasing unhappiness in general around the continued adjudication and incarceration of so many of our young men, often related to uh, substance dependence problems. And I know there's been a lot of concerns raised about the paucity of treatment for those conditions. Now, I may be a little biased because I work at a residential program that specializes in teenage boys with severe mental problems who might otherwise be adjudicated. And so I see every day severely impaired boys being able to be rehabilitated and treated if they receive the kinds of care they require, which is not um, something often available to them in the judicial system. So I really think that we need to be aware, all of us do, about the least of us, if you will, because it will tell us a lot about what, what all of us might expect should things go badly for us. So, John, tell us more about your work at the Colorado Boys Ranch and, and what is possible given a 
competent, nurturing treatment environment? The Colorado Boys Ranch, also known as CBR Youth Connect, they've kind of changed their name as well to reflect that they want to be a, a resource for other agencies as well. But it began as an orphanage 48 years ago, as many of these did. And it's a little unusual in that it's a nonprofit, freestanding residential treatment center in an unlikely location outside of La Junta, Colorado. This program, I've been their psychiatrist for 11 plus years now, but it specializes in males 10 to 20 who have usually failed multiple placements and do not have adequate psychiatric services in their community. So we have youths from California, Alaska, Pennsylvania, uh, West Virginia, Washington, D.C. We may have up to 13 different states. Many of them are funded by their social service agencies, Medicaid funding, these sorts of things. These are usually children who are from disadvantaged backgrounds. And they all have to have a history of serious psychiatric problems and can't be treated in their community. Those are the two criteria that we're quite clear about. And their average length of stay has varied over the years, but it's usually a year to year and a half, which is unusual in that for anyone listening who does child psychiatry will know that the really severely impaired youngsters are very hard to hang on to and treat because they often bounce from one placement to another, from one hospital ward to another, and they lack continuity and treatment. The Boys Ranch allows us to provide education, psychological services, psychiatric care by myself, general medical care by our primary care physician, and intensive family therapy, both in person and telephonically, uh, with an eye of helping these boys get things straightened out, both medically and mentally. And what is possible? Well, it's remarkable. I would say the thing I've learned in child psychiatry is how well children do is just remarkable. First of all, some of these youngsters are suffering from just a fragmented mental health system. So I may have a youngster come in on six or seven medications, and I may be able to identify the one or two they actually need just because I'm the only prescriber and I can start withdrawing medications in a controlled setting and sort out the diagnosis, which is very, very helpful. Uh, secondly, I can see youngsters who, in a, in a setting that can accommodate their psychiatric problems, I can see them maybe have three grade-year advancements in their achievement tests because what was happening before is they could not be tolerated in the classroom in California because they did not have the means to manage the emotional upheavals that were going on on a daily basis. I can have a youngster take a time out uh, safely on his, in his room or on his unit and then come back to the classroom uh, and get another three hours' worth of education, whereas before he might have been suspended you know, from his school district. So all of those things are, are some of the possibilities that, that we've seen. What can we take from this into our communities and our practices? Well, I think the Boys Ranch represents what's possible, and in that regard it's important. At a time when a lot of programs that are expensive and labor-intensive are going by the wayside, the thing that bothers me is that we're going to lose some wisdom that you only have when you have treaters that have done this for years together in one place. So I hope we can preserve that kind of information. The other is I think it has more to do with choices that society makes about how best to spend their resources on children and adolescents who have serious psychiatric and emotional problems. And I would hope that we've come to a point where 
the adjudication uh, and incarceration of children has run its course, and people might take a longer view of what's possible in helping people becoming more productive citizens and affording them appropriate mental health treatment. So I think the Boys Ranch is one example of what's possible if society decides to make that a priority and make that a choice. And I'm sure that many of the boys that we have at the Boys Ranch, if they had more services earlier in their life and more accessible to them in their communities, uh, would have not needed such an intensive residential placement. I want to thank our guest today, Dr. John Hardy. I am Dr. Leslie Lunt. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, please send your emails to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.